Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored magazine. In the 1930s, air travel across the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and North America was really in its infancy. The vast airships of the German Zeppelin company, Zeppelins or Dirigibles, took an early lead, competing not with airplanes but ocean liners. The Hindenburg passed over Connecticut 21 times during its 17-month service, including round trips to Germany and the Millionaire's Flight. In this episode, we'll talk to Alexander Rose, author of Empires of the Sky, Zeppelins, Airplanes, and Two Men's Epic Duel to Rule the World. And we'll hear from Bridgeport historian Carolyn Ivanov, author of the article, The Hindenburg Flies Over Bridgeport, in the summer 2022 issue of Connecticut Explored. And we'll find out more about why the Nazi swastika is visible in many of the photos taken over Connecticut. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. I was so interested last year when I was writing an article about the building of the Traveler's Tower in Hartford, Connecticut, to see this, what I thought was just astonishing photo of the Hindenburg with its swastika painted on the on the end of it, on flying right over the Traveler's Tower. And I thought, what is that? What was happening there? So I went and made a point to go get your book, Empires of the Sky, Zeppelins, Airplanes, and Two Men's Epic Duel to Rule the World, and have been fascinated enough that we actually worked with an author for our summer issue to write about her father's experiences in seeing the Hindenburg fly over Bridgeport. More about that later. But Alexander, maybe you could explain, you know, what is a dirigible? Uh, it's actually quite simple. Uh, dirigible, which people often confuse with uh, sort of a blimp, like the Goodyear blimp or something. Uh, a, a blimp is basically just a blown up balloon. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Whereas a dirigible is has got a, a sort of a skeleton, a metal skeleton, and, uh, and around it is wrapped the fabric of the of the cover, of course, and then inside. It's got sort of bags or cells of hydrogen or helium gas to keep it to keep it upright. So there's there can be 14 or 20 of these cells within a, a, a colossus like the, the Hindenburg, uh, whereas a blimp is sort of usually just sort of one big balloon. It's certainly nothing you see now. They are completely, I would say, extinct. But you write about how they were such a viable option and they were in direct competition in the 20th century with airplanes to create a viable and commercial route across the Atlantic, back and forth from North America to Europe. How did that competition play out? Whoever thought dirigibles would keep up with airplanes or vice versa? Well, uh, just to pick you up on one little point there, dirigibles or airships are are actually not dead. People assume that they they are. But um, uh, I think it's Sergey Brin of Google has a, you know, what I believe is to be a major airship effort going on. He's been developing them for years. So with all the new, um, new, you know, materials and and helium and all that kind of stuff, they're hoping to 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 sort of kickstart a new airship age, which would be, if it happens, it'll be really interesting. But to go back to the point, the uh, you know, the airship 
airplane uh, sort of struggle for mastery of the air, uh, you know, goes back to the very, very beginnings of, of their invention, which were both about the time of, you know, just very quickly, about 1900-ish. And people, people forget that there, for about 40 years, this was, a, this was a kind of an existential life and death struggle. Only one could survive, you know, the, this, this, this battle between them. But it's completely forgotten about nowadays because, you know, the, the, the victory of the airplane, and I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here, the, <laughs> the victory of the airplane was so complete and total that it, like the memory Apart from this kind of weird folk memory of uh, you know of the of the Hindenburg and flames and someone saying oh you know all the humanity, this is sort of a folk memory of it. But the you know it kind of almost wiped out any any recollection that these that these behemoths of the air these airships you know dominated um, the skies for for decades. And if you were a person, let's put it this way: if you were if if, if this were uh, like 1920, 1925 or so. And you had to put money on which form of vehicle, airship or airplane, would be the big success story of the 20th century. If you were smart, you'd put your, your money on the airship. Because air, airplanes with these little dinky, clattering, cluttering, uh, nausea-inducing little you know, putters of the air you know, that could carry maybe eight or nine people at the time. Uh, and maybe they were useful for short flights, you know, like New York to... Boston, New York, maybe Chicago, that kind of thing. Whereas an airship could just glide serenely around the entire world with with hardly with hardly a break, and it used up very little very little gas, very little energy. They were virtually silent. It was, they were no louder than being in a in a in a quiet office. Whereas in a plane, I mean, you were juddering and clattering around. Um, people were throwing up all over the place. There was no pressurization. It was really, really pretty awful. But it didn't turn out that way. And that's the great mystery that I wanted to, to illuminate and explain in, in the book. But why, why did the airship basically die out? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the really luxury accommodations on the airship, dirigible zeppelins versus airplanes. You just started to talk about how you're in an unpressurized cabin on an airplane. But talk a little bit about that luxurious experience you had if you cross the Atlantic in a dirigible. Oh, they were they were great fun. The you have to remember with the with the the, the Hindenburg and the and the other great Zeppelin airships, to their mind, they weren't competing against TWA or uh, Pan Am or um, American Airlines or anything or United or anything. They weren't competing against them. They they, they were they some local little. You know, little outfits that flew between into, into you know between little cities. The Zeppelin people were competing against the you know the first class uh, cruise liners, which were the other only other way to get across the Atlantic. You know, they, so they were they had to compete luxury wise with uh, you know the, the the like the SS Normandy, like the great French liner of the 1930s and so on. We, we had these huge staterooms and you know. They had swimming pools and, you know, all the stuff that you associate with cruise liners nowadays. They, they kind of had it then. It was just a, a lot more expensive um, and there were fewer of them. So even then, though, on the, on the, on the Hindenburg, I mean, they, they, they really were quite, quite well designed. You had fairly good food, you know, pretty good food. There were always complaints about the food. There's nothing new there about uh, air, basically airship food. And, uh, you know, you had entertainment. You had there was a, at one point there was <laughs> there was a, an, a, an aluminum piano. They had to make it aluminum because it uh, they had to be 
as light as possible to to, to float uh, up in the air. You um you know and you had you know a little library and there were there were nice little nice little cabins and all that kind of stuff and sort of turned down service I guess and you know very good service from the from the crew and so on. And it was quite a thrill. And, and it was it was the only way, it was, the, it was the fastest way to get across the Atlantic. I mean, I think the Hindenburg could make it from Germany to uh, New York in, I think, on average, about two days to get across, which to us seems like like a lifetime if you're used to getting across to, to, England, to London in five or six hours, you know, on, on, a, on, a, on Delta or something. But, uh, you know, compared to the fastest... The fastest steam line, the fastest liners, cruise liners, and that I think it took four or five days. It looked like they had these beautiful uh, lounges, I want to call them salons, mm-hmm. where then you and you could look out the window the whole time. And uh, oh, so it was and... spectacular. Um, there were you know beautiful lounges. Uh, they had very modern, and I, I have a chapter in the book on it. You know the design of the furniture; it's all very nineteen thirties Art Deco. Go, you know, no, no, no sharp edges. It was all curves and all that kind of stuff. You know, there was a, there was even a smoking room uh, on the Hindenburg, um, which is actually one of the safest parts of the ship because it was insulated. And you know, there were bars and martinis and all this kind of stuff. And, and yes, the, uh, you mentioned the windows. You have to remember that, relatively speaking, very, very few people had actually been in the air. I mean, it was uh, you, you got to. Wrench yourself out of today's mindset and put yourself in the the, the mind of a, someone in the 1930s. I mean, a tiny, tiny proportion of the population had been in the air, and so you know, to us, you know, I, I look at it. You go on a plane nowadays, and you know, everyone's on their iPads. <laughs> Nobody, um, nobody's even bothering to look out the window because it's you know they you know they or they to put the the the, the shutter down so that they can you know watch. Uh, you know, uh, you know, watch a TV show without the sun glaring on it, you know, getting in the way. But in those days, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary thing to go up amongst the clouds I mean, or, or even just to look down and see, you know, the little little toy towns and little toy cars and the roads and all this kind of stuff. It was it, people were completely, you know, astounded by this. And then when you're in the, the Hindenburg and, and it's silent and you're almost still and you're up in the clouds, uh, you know, across the Atlantic. Um, what they would do is they would shine. Uh, you could see, well, you could see um, your shadow, you know, sort of reflected onto the sky, onto the clouds, or onto the, you know, onto the water below. It was an extraordinary, and you could see light shows. You could you could go through. Um, what they would do is they would um, the, the the zeppelin pilots would brush the sides of a storm, and you know, to collect water along the, the ship so they could use it for fresh water. I mean, that must have been an extraordinary uh, experience. And that's what I think is is usually people just ignore nowadays. When they, <laughs> whenever they get on a plane, they're just you know complaining about taking off fifteen minutes late, kind of thing. You know, it's, it's just a completely different mindset. But you couldn't get that in an airplane where you know you were in the nineteen twenties. You were kind of lucky if you got to where you wanted to go. You know, uh, there were so many crashes. Now the Germans seem to excel at the construction of dirigibles. I know there were other countries, including the U.S. Uh, I guess the Navy that had built these kind of airships. But it takes an Im- just an immense amount of capital to create these airships and to keep these businesses going. Could you talk a little bit about what, what you refer to as the millionaire's flight over the East Coast in 1936? Because I know they went over several parts of Connecticut in that flight. Um, yeah, the, 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 there is a, um, there's a popular myth that, uh, that when the Hindenburg uh, was destroyed, that that was its first 
trip. There's a, I, you know, that was like almost his maiden voyage. I think people get confused uh, with the Hindu, they, they confuse it with the Titanic. I think they kind of get kind of get run together uh, in these sort of dual disasters. But in fact, the Hindenburg had been had been operating very successfully in the the year previously, and that was part of what was popularly known as the, the Millionaire's Flight. This was in I think October 1936. May 1937 is when the Hindenburg was destroyed. It was part of the it was the first flight of the of the new flying season. So what happened? What it was was that uh, the head of Zeppelin, a very long time ago, who's who's the, the greatest airshipman in the world, uh, was a guy called Hugo Eckner, who at one point at that time was, you know, one of the most famous men in the world. I mean, he was just as famous and earlier than Charles Lindbergh, who was the other most famous person in the world. You know, I mean, Hugo Eckner was on the front page of the New York Times all the time. Whenever he made a flight, it was news. I mean, he was he was a a big guy, and he'd been around with Zeppelin since about 1905 or so. And he was, you know, he was in his 60s, very gruff, very kind of Teutonic, but you know, a very, very, a very decent fellow, um, and not a Nazi, by the way. He was quite, quite, quite the opposite, which got him into a whole lot of trouble with, uh, with, uh, with Hitler. But um, in he, what he wants to do is he wants to set up uh, sort of a, 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 a airship armada. He wants to use the Hindenburg as kind of the proof of concept that. If uh, if you finance us, then we will build in alliance with American companies like Goodyear, and that's one of the reasons there's a Goodyear blimp even to this day. Goodyear was was in a in a kind of a, a partnership with with Zeppelin in the in the 20s and 30s. That we would then if you finance us, then we're going to build five, 10, 15 of these giant airships, and you're going to fight. We'll handle we'll handle Europe to New York. That's that's Zeppelin turf. But Goodyear or anyone who wants else to come in, can, they can take New York, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, and the other great, the other great voyage would be Los Angeles or California, Hawaii, you know, for the for the for the tourists. Um, and we're going to build these things, and and you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to you're going to be able to fly across America, you know, New York to Los Angeles in in a day or two. It's going to be amazing. And so he brings the the Hindenburg to uh, New York in in October 1936, and he. Uh, he he collects some of the you know the greatest American financiers and businessmen you know the the, the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank and uh, you know various bankers you know the heads of uh, the the bosses of American Airlines and United and all this kind of stuff and, and tries to get them on board to show them and so that's why they go on this this marvelous fall trip I guess to, you know, I guess they saw the, the the changing of the the leaves and so on um, you know through Connecticut up to Boston just for an afternoon and then they then they turn around and come back and it's all all it's all a beautiful amazing experience um, and every everyone is ecstatic about it there are about forty or fifty guests on there and they're all ecstatic this again as I said this is the coming thing this is going to be the big one and you know a huge expansion of of zeppelins across the world let's hear from Bridgeport historian Carolyn Ivanov about what a spectacle this flyover by the millionaire's flight was in 1936. Welcome. Thank you, Mary. How did you hear about this flight? Well, it was one of my father's treasured memories, and he would tell me stories about his childhood on the east side of Bridgeport. And one of the things he always talked about was he went to St. Mary's School, which is no longer down there on the east side, but he remembered that the nuns let everybody out of school one day to stand in the playground to watch the Hindenburg go 
fly over Bridgeport. And he was absolutely fascinated. He never forgot this. He passed this memory on to me. And I have been doing some research in the Bridgeport History Center with their photo archives. And I just happened to see a photograph of this dirigible flying over what used to be the Herald Building um, down on, it used to be the Seaside Institute or whatever. And I was just flabbergasted. I didn't know anything about the year. My father was only nine years old, but he repeated this story several times to me. And suddenly I just thought of my father and then I started digging in. And Bridgeport History Center had a couple of great photos and there were articles about it. And it was just such a, I was just so pumped to see in 2021 what my father had saw and described from 1936. How did Bridgeport react to having this dirigible fly over? Well, they were, um, I think almost everybody in the city came out to see this. Um, I mentioned it to my uncle, who is 97 this year, World War II vet. And as soon as I said it, he lit up like a Christmas tree and said, oh, I remember that. That was exciting. And But you know what? Bridgeport, uh, which my father probably didn't realize, Bridgeport was 100 years old in 1936. And so the flyover was part of the centennial celebrations and the Hindenburg flew over twice. And it was just a noisy celebratory atmosphere where people came out into the streets and they stood on roofs and factory whistles blew. And it was just an unforgettable experience for anyone who witnessed it that day. And here's what the Hartford Current reported. Traffic stopped. From the air, even more than from the streets, was the impression made by the airship evident. Traffic was stopped on every highway leading into the city as drivers stood beside their cars and looked upward. There was hardly a large building in Hartford that did not have its quota of roof watchers. Football practice on the Trinity Athletic Field, tennis games on the courts at Goodwin Park, construction work on the Clark Dyke, all came temporarily to a halt as the dirigible went over. Unable to join other distinguished guests on the Great Zeppelin, Governor Cross viewed its approach from his office window at the state capitol. State and city employees saw the dirigible from the roofs of their office buildings. The 10-minute visit to Hartford ended. The Hindenburg proceeded on an itinerary which included Springfield, Worcester, Boston, Providence, New London, New Haven, Bridgeport, Norwalk, and Stamford, arriving at Lakehurst, New Jersey, early in the evening. And, of course, then May... May, May 1937 happens, uh, the Hindenburg goes down, but actually more importantly is, is the, you know, the, the increasing antagonism between the United States and Nazi Germany. That's what really kills it. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. I think that's kind of interesting that the Zeppelin Company and uh, Eckner, as they're really the face of that company, really just get ensnared in the Nazi thing because that's how the government in Germany goes and that's where they're headquartered. Could you talk just a little bit about how 
you know, was was that was that a company that the Nazis favored? Was that a company that they didn't favor? How did that go for him during the war? Well, uh, you have to remember, Zeppelin was a was a legendary company in Germany. It just it's like almost like it's sort of like General Electric. It's sort of, you know, it goes back to the great genius Edison or in this case, Count von Zeppelin, who was the creator of the Zeppelin. Uh, and you know who died in during the First World War. He's very old, very very old by then. But it's it's kind of like a storied company, and it was the pride. It was the pride of Germany. I mean, it was German expertise. It was German engineering. It was German genius that created the the, the grand airships of the 20th century. Nobody else could do them. The British had tried it, and they. <laughs> It basically crashed all of them. The French had given it a go, nothing happening. The U.S. Navy built a few. They did, you know, they 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 crashed in 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 most circumstances. They just didn't work. They could nobody else could. As far as from the German perspective, this was a German field that they nobody could beat them. And that that from that of course grows, uh, as, you know, some cockiness and and you know that kind of thing. But essentially, they were the they called themselves the masters of hydrogen. They were the only ones who could figure out flying by airship. And um, Eckner would, was always trying to be non-political. He wanted to just stay out of politics because he knew that Zeppelins were such a powerful symbol that any budding political party would want to use them and exploit them. And all Eckner wanted to do was create a grand airship fleet and and as he said, you know, unite the countries and make a, a borderless world and fly airships around everywhere and, you know, open our minds and all this kind of stuff. It was all very idealistic. Unfortunately, he's running up against people who are much more cynical and much more ruthless than he is um, if from the early 1930s in Germany. And while the, you know, while the Nazis, like Hitler and Goebbels, the propaganda minister and Himmler, and they, had, they actually had very little interest in, in airships. Hitler always said he would never step foot in one, but they still, they still, they still kind of wanted them. I mean, <laughs> they wanted them as symbols for say, you know, and, and that's why they, that's why they flew over the, uh, you know, the Berlin Olympics in 1936 over the great stadiums and the great footage of them. So they recognized their power uh, and, you know, and, 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 and their, you know, in their size and the immensity and the way they could impress uh, for propaganda reasons, you know, the world. That said, while so you have this tragedy slowly happening in that Eckner is trying to stay independent, he's trying to run his Zeppelin company and make alliances with the Americans in Goodyear and create all this stuff, but he can't he can't get out of it because the the, the, the Nazis will not allow anywhere any kind of independent company, and so you have to be what, what, what essentially Nazified. You know, it's what happened to say, you know, Mercedes Benz and so on. You suddenly get a whole bunch of sort of Nazi toadies being put on your board and that kind of thing to make sure that you're working for the for the fatherland. And that's exactly what happens to Zeppelin. And because Eckner made some ill ill chosen comments at the at wrong times, he was kind of by the mid thirties he was completely sidelined. He'd been he'd been pushed out, and he was kind of a figurehead now because he was so famous. They couldn't kill him. Uh, or jail him because he was too he was just too famous in the world you can't you couldn't, you couldn't disappear him but his his very ambitious uh deputy who he'd known you know going back 30 years kind of replaces him and he's he's you know he's much more 
his name is Lehman, and he, he was much more, uh, you know, uh, acceptable to the party because he was a member of the party and so on. So that's what essentially happens to Zeppelin. It gets essentially taken over and, and turned into a into a propaganda tool. And Eckner, you know, it was a tragedy, but he had to keep on going. He just he, all he wanted to do was create this airship, and that and that's what got him in the end. He just couldn't get out of the the sort of this diabolical maze that he'd created for himself. So that accounts for the big swastika on the dirigible that I thought was just so mind-blowing when I saw the photo of it flying over Connecticut. Now, now he, he, he was very much against that, by the way. He hated that thing. Uh, he just thought it was an embarrassment. But, you know, he's not the boss anymore. He, you know, you know, he has to serve somebody. I have, am definitely one of those people that thought that after the uh, Hindenburg crashes and the, there's film of it and there's the radio announcers that everybody's heard, and it's such it's such a tragedy. I think what is it? Just a few, fifty people out of a very small number survive, and it's it's a major story in the world. I am one of those people that thought that that would have done in the Hindenburg Company as a whole, but it really didn't. There were certainly other plane crashes. Their aviation was just kind of um, dangerous to start with. Can you talk a little bit about how that didn't really end the whole? movement yeah no it's 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 this uh it, you're absolutely right you're not alone people always assume oh the hindenburg went up in flames that's the end of it that's what killed them it's actually that's not the case i mean it was it wasn't a good thing i mean <laughs> but at the same time if you actually read the newspapers from the time and of the coverage from you know the days and weeks following the hindenburg it was, um, you know, the Germans were already moving on building a new one. President, uh, you know, President Roosevelt was already saying, hey, um, you know, come back to America. We, we want to have we want to have the Zeppelin company here. It'd be great. Uh, you know, newspapers were all in favor of, 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 of having new one. There was nobody saying, oh, my goodness, these things are death traps. We must we must ban them. Virtually no one was saying that. And the, one of the reasons is, is that you have to compare you know, it, it sounds rather uh, morbid, but it's, it is important. You have to compare the sort of the uh, the statistics, you know, this, uh, the fatalities here. Like basically there were about 1,900 1900 people on the Hindenburg of whom 30 died in the, the fire, you know, which is which is awful. And it was a complete accident, by the way, the fire it was a one in a million chance that this could have happened. But at this, in the same year, 36 or 37,000 people died in, in car crashes. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people died in, in completely avoidable air accidents. Um, so it's it's not as if all you know the the, the airships were, were very unsafe. If anything, they were they were incredibly safe uh, until the Hindenburg happened. I mean, Eckner from 1912 until the fatal day in 1937 and May 37, not a single person had ever been killed on a civilian airship. Or I think someone got a broken leg once. I mean, that was basically the only injury that ever occurred, <laughs> as opposed to the thousands of people who died in, 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 in the air. That's really remarkable. I hadn't actually ever seen that statistic. That's pretty amazing. Now, they want to shift from, is it hydrogen to helium? And, mm -hmm. they, can't, and they can't get the United States to provide them with enough or to sign off on shipping them helium? No. No, it's a, again, it's a fascinating episode. Um, one, one thing that people often do is assume is or sort of say, what a bunch of idiots. What kind of dolt uses hydrogen, which is extremely flammable, in an airship? 
And look what happens. You get the Hindenburg. Why didn't they use helium, which, which you can't ignite? And, you know, the fact is that the Germans weren't idiots. <laughs> to their mind, um, they had been working with hydrogen since, you know, 1900 or so, even 1890, 1900. They were, as they said, uh, you know, they were, they were the masters of, hel- uh, of hydrogen. They knew how to purify it. They knew how to, to manipulate it. They knew how to keep it safe. There's a wonderful story of Eckner, just to sh- who would show off. He'd have a, a gas cell. Um, you know, like a bag, inflatable bag of hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of pure hydrogen. And he'd be having, he'd be, he'd light his cigar two inches away from it. Nothing would happen because it's, hydrogen is really only dangerous if it's mixed, if it's first impure and mixed with oxygen. That's that. And then you just, it starts becoming much more flammable. The purified stuff sealed, nothing happens. But the fact is, is that the world is moving towards helium. But there were problems with that. They couldn't just switch over to helium. It's like switching from a, you know, a, like a, you know, from a, a, an internal combustion engine to a, an electrical motor. You know, you, you have to, there's a lot of stuff that's involved with this. And the fact is that helium was much more expensive. It was significantly heavier as a gas than hydrogen. So the airships couldn't lift anywhere near as much as they could with hydrogen. That's one of the reasons why the Germans loved hydrogen. You could lift a huge amount of it. It was the lightest element on Earth. And it was hard to get. And more to the point, the only place you could get helium in the entire world was basically Texas and Oklahoma. And it was accounted as a strategic resource, as it still is, by the way. There is a strategic helium reserve of the United States of the United States. But there were there was a movement towards um, you know, Eckner understood this that you know the Americans really wanted helium in the airships, just especially if they wanted to fly over a city or something, just in case, you know. And so he was negotiating for years to get it, unenthusiastically, but he, he, was, he was negotiating for it. But the problem, and again, after the Hindenburg accident, there was this huge sympathy vote for, for the Zeppelin Corporation. And, and you know, many, many Americans wanted to give him the, sell him the helium that he wanted. The problem is, is that politics, as usual, got in the way. And that was, is that from 1937, 1938 onwards, you have Hitler making much more aggressive moves in Europe. And, you know, setting setting off Washington and London, you know, alarm bells and so on. You know, you have, uh, you know, Kristallnacht and things like that. Um, you, you know, you have pressure groups in the United States. You say, we, you know, we let's let's basically divest from Germany. We don't want to deal with these people anymore. They're violent. Do, 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 do. So it becomes politically impossible to sell him, to sell Eckner the helium. And I have a chapter in the book where it all comes down to the crux, where Eckner has a meeting with uh, with someone. Uh, in the American government, and who asks him, you know, if we sell you this helium, can you guarantee that it will not be used for military purposes in Germany at all? And Eckner, you know, Eckner kind of thinks about it. And if he just said, yes, I can guarantee that, he probably would have gotten the helium and he would have been able to build a lot more airships. But he just, he had, I think it's a, it's a, the, the pity of it all is that Eckner had just had enough of this ongoing tragedy. He was getting very old. He'd been pushed out. He hated what had happened to Germany. He hated how his airships were being manipulated and 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 exploited for nefarious purposes. And he just basically says, "No, I can't guarantee that." And at that point, you know, the door closes, and that's why they don't get the helium. It's a really fascinating story that hasn't really been told before. I thought so too, and I also thought it was interesting. Could you just briefly explain what happens to the Zeppelin company? After the war, after the second war, 
because there's just these little remnants that still exist. But how does that come together and close well, out? Well, during, during the war, um, I mean, you know, people like Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, I mean, had zero interest in Zeppelins. All he wanted, all that he wanted were fighters and, and bombers. He didn't want this. He, he the, the Nazis regarded airships as being this kind of relic of the Kaiser, you know, like Germany 40 years earlier. You know, it's, it was kind of a relic of the past. They understood that there was a romantic attachment to them. They wanted fast, new, deadly fighters and bombers and that kind of thing. And so Hermann Go, you know, uh, Goering authorizes the destruction of the remaining Zeppelins in sort of 1939, 1940, and says, well, we're just going to take over these, these air, you know, warehouses. We need them for our own stuff. Um, so that's that's the sort of the end of the Zeppelin company in, in its airship format so to speak. Um, it still remains during the war and it kind of turns into more of a kind of a, I think it makes um, parts for tanks and things like that. You know, it's basically, you know, it's being basically completely subordinated to the armaments effort. Eckner has nothing to do with this really. I mean, he's kind of this, you know, he's, I think in his seventies by then and he's been, you know, he's been long being pushed out, but, you know, so Zeppelin becomes nothing. And then at the end of the war, basically, I mean, it's it's sort of a shell. I mean, it's just this. It's it's not. It doesn't. It's almost doesn't. It exists in name. That's basically, and that that was basically where where it said. I mean, again, it has. It, it's still around uh, today, but you know, in in a completely different way. But it, um, in a completely different uh, sort of line of work. But you know, after the war, there are there are attempts uh, by some American fans, not so much by Eckner, who kind of saw the writing on the wall, <laughs> uh, and it was just getting too old for this too. You know, of let's resurrect airships. They, 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 they're, they're still a going concern. They're fantastic. You know, we'll all love them if we build them. And you know, they try and get these efforts off the ground, and it doesn't really happen because people can see the reality for themselves. And the reality is, is that Etna's long-term rival, One Trip, who ran Pan Am uh, and various other airlines, you know, they're bringing in large aircraft that can uh, make the jump across the Atlantic in a single bound and they're much more comfortable i mean they've fixed a lot of the problems that were that were had been hampering them in the 1920s and 30s um they're very comfortable and most importantly they're carrying more and more people and they're also developing jet engines and that kind of thing and ekna can see all of this and he just says and at one point i think i can't remember the day some several years after the war he basically tells whoever's still working at the zeppelin factory of all right you know let's pack it up <laughs> you know, the victory of the jet is nigh kind of thing. My last question to you, after you've done all this research and written this book, do you think that just from an engineering point of view, it was always inevitable that airplanes would succeed where dirigibles did not? I, I think, I, yeah, that's a great question. I do think that it, it was inevitable that the airplane would win over the airship simply because, and I, I go into some... Uh, into some description of this in the book. And the reason is, is that aircraft technology and technological development was developing exponentially faster than, than airship technology. You know, really, because remember, you only have one or two of these huge Zeppelins around, you know, so to build a new one takes many, many years. And it costs, uh, I think, as you mentioned before, it costs a fortune. And, uh, you know, there's, there's only so far you can go with airship technology. Whereas with airplanes, 
they were they were reiterating. They were creating new generations of aircraft, seemingly every six months or so. I mean, you saw how quickly uh, you know compare a compare a uh, you know a 1914 airplane, those little rickety sort of right flyer type things, to uh, to a you know a, a a plane of 1945. I mean, they almost like completely different objects. I mean, as they say in the book, airships breed like elephants and airplanes breed like rabbits. And after a while. When you're producing thousands of airplanes, and at some point, they're just going to completely leapfrog any kind of airship. So you know, at the end of the day, you know, the the airplane was bound to win, except that there were the it might have been a place for airships for another ten or twenty years if the Hamburg hadn't gone down and there hadn't been problems with the helium and and the, and the Nazis hadn't hadn't existed that kind of thing. You know, they still would. They would still be spanning and uh, spanning the the Atlantic and the Pacific, which no plane could do anyway for many, many decades afterwards. So it's uh, you know, it's an interesting, interesting question. What the, the woulda, coulda of it all. Thank you to our guest historians Alexander Rose and Carolyn Ivanov. Rose has a new book coming out in December of 2022. The Lion and the Fox. And listeners can subscribe to his weekly Substack newsletter, Secret Worlds, which explores historical espionage and occasionally aviation at alexanderrose.substack.com. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. I have been covering the built environment and pop culture for over 30 years. Contact me at marydonahue at comcast.net. Join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.